Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years. Maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. From Coochie Dottie to Olive Salad, Louisiana is deeply permeated with Sicilian culture. So on this week's show, we're talking with New Orleans natives who all share a deep love and respect for their Sicilian heritage. We begin with Grace and Tony Mandina, whose West Bank restaurant, Tony Mandina's, has been welcoming guests in true old world style for almost 40 years. Those Mandinas are one in a million, good hardworking folks for whom La Familia always comes first. Then we'll hear from Laura Guccione, who shares her research on the Sicilian fruit, which is also known as a Japanese plum. How's that for a misnomer for you? Then we sit down with Sal Impostato of the renowned Napoleon House clan. Sal tells us the story of the business that was family owned and operated for almost a hundred years. We're celebrating Louisiana culture, Sicilian style, on this week's Louisiana Eats. Five miles from downtown New Orleans is the city of Gretna, situated on the opposing bank of the Mississippi River. There, on an unassuming street off the West Bank Expressway, you'll find Tony Mandina's restaurant. Since 1982, the Mandina family has offered locals a quiet, friendly space to enjoy delicious cuisine made with pride from their Sicilian ancestry. Originally opened by Tony Mandina and his wife Grace Blanchard Mandina, the restaurant is now run by second-generation owner Colette Mandina Ditta and her daughter, Lindsay Marcel. In the fall of 2020, Colette reached out to me about writing a cookbook for her family's restaurant. To get the full story, Grace and Tony graciously invited me into their home on Gretna Boulevard. When I arrived, Colette and her parents were dusting off old photo albums, thick with four decades of memories of the family restaurant. Oh, is this, so this is you in the kitchen? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Look yeah. at those beautiful blue Thank eyes, you. huh? Everybody who comes in wants to see Miss Grace. See of Ms. Grace. course. Well, well, I work here, too. You know. <laughs> Look at that fox. That's me. <laughs> My goodness. Uh-huh. That was one Sean. of those days when he would skinny take working on adorable jacket off and get with it, you know. As they reminisced about things past, I learned how this loving, hardworking couple successfully raised three daughters while creating a legendary West Bank institution. Who are you? Hi, my name is Tony Mandina. 
and I am the founder of Tony Mandina's Restaurant in Gretna, Louisiana. Hello, I'm Grace Blanchard Mandina. She is not Blanchard. <laughs> and I guess I went along with this deal with owning this Tony Mandina's restaurant. Grace and Tony's story begins over 50 years ago, following Tony's stint in the military service. Charming and affable, Tony was a consummate salesman who put those skills to work at the West Bank location of Kirschman's Furniture Store. Meanwhile, Gretna-born Grace held a job as a clerk at another furniture store nearby. I worked at Cavaretta's Furniture right next door, and Tony's brother Paul and I worked together. So I knew Paul before I knew Tony. And Tony was down the street at Kirschman's, and Paul kept saying, I want you to meet my brother. And of course, I think he would go after Tony and say, I want you to meet this girl at work. And we kind of stayed away from that until one day he came to visit his brother, and that's how we met. She was working at her desk, and and then I said, Ray, brah, who's that little girl sitting there? He said, you stupid ass. He said, I've been trying to tell you about that a number of times. So we went to lunch that first day. I took her to lunch across the street at Buck 49. Buck 49. The two were married just four months later and would go on to raise three little girls, Kim, Colette, and Carrie. Tony continued his full-time job at Kirschman's, but also saw the potential to accumulate wealth through real estate. He started to purchase and renovate derelict properties, doing all the work himself. Though he toiled from dawn until dusk, Tony made sure there was always time for family. We used to uh, love the camping uh, thing, and we had a trailer 25 foot long and that, that we used to go out almost every week to uh, our favorite place in Buccaneer State Park. One fateful early Saturday morning, the family was on their way to Buccaneer State Park when Tony became distracted by a sign he spotted on a building just across the expressway. I saw this for sale sign on this cute little defunct defunct building. building. <laughs> And uh, so I, I told her, I said, gee, I said, look, at that, look at that building. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so I flipped around and I got the phone number of the, the realtor. And we went on our way anyway to Buckingham State Park. So when we got there, I started, I pulled everything out. And then I was walking away. She says, where are you going? She says, I'm going to a telephone. <laughs> to call about the property. I made the deal over the phone, believe it or not. When I bought it, I mean, it was bad. They had weeds and everything, and it it was horrible. But and through my eyes then, at the time, it it was beautiful. Yeah, he could see things. You know, I I could visualize and see things. Yeah. And uh, so I... Uh, physically tore it apart myself and redone it. Every morning, Tony would rise at 5 a.m. to put in three or four hours of work on the property before beginning his workday at Kirschman's. 
And uh, then when we got to the inside, it started to take a little shape, you know. We were done it with the walls, hanging lights, and all that. As the work neared completion, Grace stopped by for their usual coffee break, and the two discussed what to do next. Lease it, uh, or we should sell it, or whatever. So anyway, we had a little discussion, and then I said, you know, Grace, what would be nice? Maybe we should open this and have a little restaurant. Well, and Grace, what did you think when he, he said that? And when really? he said that, he, he looked down at the floor, and I was laying on the floor and said, what? <laughs> I had no idea what we were talking about. I mean, when he said that, I said, what do we know about a restaurant? And he said, well, you're always cooking, and you always cook big. I would cook on Sunday, oh sure, meatball and spaghetti. And then we always had friends dropping in because we were on the street. So friends would stop in and they'd eat. He said, well, you always cooking. Uh, yeah, little I did you. I know it wasn't only about cooking though, yeah. you know. Yeah. On November 15th, 1982, Tony Mandina's restaurant opened its doors, welcoming customers for the first time. The little building was outfitted with just 14 tables, serving lunch Monday through Friday. It was truly a family affair, with Grace's older sister Phyllis in the kitchen and baby sister Debbie working the front of the house. We had four two tops and ten, and ten four, four tops. tops. And the bar was, <clears throat> in fact, uh, a little bitty old bar almost where it is right now. little uh-huh. bitty old kitchen, no air conditioning. Yeah. My kitchen was so small, and I had one oh, refrigerator. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was crazy. To manage the workload, Tony continued to rise at 5 a.m. every day to bake the bread and make red gravy and fig cookies before going to work at Kirschman's. Once the children left for school, Grace and her sisters picked up where Tony left off. Paul's wife, Dolores, also joined the team. So the three of us cuckoos, four of us cuckoos, <laughs> we put our heads, we put our heads together and we kind of got it started. Running the business without any restaurant experience, the ragtag team often had to make it up as they went along. There were lots of pitfalls and laughs in those early days, including Grace's brief run-in with federal law enforcement. The day we opened up, I need um, I need to get some liquor on the bar, but I knew I couldn't sell it because I didn't have my license yet. So um, I had some liquor from home and put it on a bar just so it could look like a bar to accommodate the restaurant, not as a bar. So I got all this liquor on the bar, and boy, my sisters and I, and we all excited, you know, we're doing business. And the little guy from the ATF, Al- something alcohol, like that. Alcohol, tobacco. Yeah. Firearms. Yeah. Walked in, little heavy set guy walks in, and he says, uh, show me your license. I said, for what? <laughs> he said, I said, for what? He said, uh, for your liquor on the bar. And I said, Oh, I applied for it. I got all my, he said, so show me the license. I said, I don't have it yet. What you doing with all that liquor on the bar? I said, well, I'm not selling it. I know I can't sell it. He says, where did you get it? And 
uh, what do I know? I don't know anything about restaurant. I said, I brought it from home just to show. He said, boy, he had another guy with him, started hauling all the liquor out of my restaurant, putting it in his car, and I'm going right behind. And my sister, Debbie, is right behind me, and I said, you, you can't take that. That's mine. It's mine. That's not, you know. So we going back and forth, and my sister said, you're going to jail. That's all she comes in. You're going to jail. You better keep your mouth shut. You're going to jail. I said, okay. I grabbed him by his arm, and I said, please listen to me. I don't want to do anything wrong. I did not know I couldn't do this. I'm not going to sell it. I know I don't want to sell it. Come see. Come see. And I brought him into the kitchen, and I had a crucifix in the kitchen because that was the first thing I hung up in, in my kitchen. And I said, look, you see that crucifix? You don't think I want to do anything wrong, huh? He says, you are doing something wrong. So, uh, and the whole time, my sister's backing me up. You're going to jail. You're going to jail. <laughs> but anyhow, um, he, was, he turned out to be nice. He said, I'm giving you a chance. He said, you put this liquor in your car and take it back where you got it and wait for your license. I learned about the, the Louisiana the liquor way. state the hard <laughs> way. The many family hands made for happy work at Tony Mandina's. Every day, both Tony and his brother Paul worked during their lunchtime at the restaurant. Grace's mother, Odell LeBlanc Blanchard, was always there to help, while Mama Mandina kept a close eye on the kitchen, ensuring her recipes were being authentically replicated. Ever the marketing genius, just two months after opening, Tony began to offer two-for-one meatballs and spaghetti on Tuesdays, which really brought in the crowds. That meatball and spaghetti just went wild. We still known for that. People, uh, all, they, they still come in and they'll say, oh, we talk and then we say, yeah, Tony Mandy, ah, two for one Tuesday. <laughs> two for one Tuesday, they say, you know, and oh my God, we met so many good people. Oh yeah. So many good friends through that restaurant. Coming up next, our conversation with Grace and Tony Mandina continues. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923. From Rouse's Markets, synonymous with seafood straight from Louisiana's waterways, Rouse's Markets tastes like home. And from Crystal Hot Sauce, made with three simple ingredients, aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt. Nothing artificial. Crystal Hot Sauce, how New Orleans does flavor. If 
you're just joining us, we've been speaking with Tony and Grace Mandina of Tony Mandina's Restaurant in Gretna, Louisiana. Having no background in the business, the couple opened the restaurant in 1982 and with help from members of their extended family, turned it into the legendary West Bank institution it is today. When we left off, Grace and Tony were describing those madcap early days of the restaurant as they were just getting their footing. Tony would eventually leave his job at Kirschman's Furniture Store to work at the restaurant full-time. Hours were extended, and as the business continued through the 90s, a piano bar was added, and the numbers of regulars grew, many becoming fast friends. All these moments were captured in photographs that Grace and Tony showed me when I visited them in their home. This was one of the first customers, too. This is that's them. That's the group. Oh, my God. These are... Oh, so this is your family? Yeah. Oh, so this is when the labor grew up. Yeah, right. They grew up, yeah. As time passed, their three daughters took more and more responsibility for restaurant operations. Kim was responsible for food purchases, while Carrie was the restaurant's party coordinator. Colette worked her magic overseeing the kitchen while dreaming of expanding the Mandina brand developing a retail business for Tony Mandina's Red Gravy. Even the birth of her daughter, Lindsay, couldn't keep Colette away from Tony Mandina's restaurant. Lindsay has been at that restaurant since she's two weeks old. Well, I, I heard she came straight from the hospital. Yeah, right there, <laughs> right there her crib at the restaurant. She did. Yeah. We, ra- we raised Lindsay in that restaurant. She knows everything about that restaurant. And what a gift. And all three of my girls, our girls, they all love it. Yeah. They still love it, you know. Uh, they had uh, they every, still every go, one of them had they still a, go into it. on the menu their name. like All the grandchildren. Yeah. But they had dishes. You have dishes named after them? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's adorable. He always said, one of these days, one of the girls are going to have to take over. And I said, how are we going to decide that? How are we going to decide that? We didn't have to decide, you know? They, they came to us. They decided. And thank God they were so gracious about it. They all came to us and said they were a little tired of doing the business. This was like in November of last year. And they were a little tired. They didn't feel like they wanted to keep on doing it. And so, okay, so what are we going to do now, you know? How, no, how, what are we going to do? It became clear that for Tony and Grace to retire, they would have to close the business. The second and third generations discussed it and came to an agreement. Lindsay appeared at her grandparents' door to tell them the news. My little Lindsay, my granddaughter, I mean, when she told me, she says, Mama, Mama and I would like to take it over. I was like, I came home to him and I said, you know, you're not going to believe this. The future of Tony Mandina's was secured. That's the only thing we own now. We don't own the restaurant, she told you. We don't own it, but how nice is that to get... It all happened at the right time. How nice is that to get your family to own the the restaurant, you know? It is such a gift. We have been so blessed. 
It's, we have yeah, been so yeah. blessed. Because if I had to sell that restaurant to somebody else, yeah. oh, it would be bad. <laughs> yeah. Thanks to Tony and Grace Mandina and second generation owner Colette Mandina Ditta for sharing their family's story. If you're interested in learning more, you can pre-order a copy of the new cookbook, Tony Mandina's Kitchen, by visiting TonyMandinas.com. Guccione is simply a fount of knowledge when it comes to Louisiana history. Her own family hails from Alia, Sicily, where she maintains close relationships with cousins and other family members today. With her background in botany, Laura has long been fascinated by a local fruit tree, often referred to as the Japanese plum, which proliferates wildly on the island of Sicily we sat down with Laura to discover the fruits of her research. Okay, so Japanese plums, that's what we called them when I was growing up. They're also called loquats, and a lot of people in New Orleans call them misbeliefs. So I was really interested. I was like, why, why misbeliefs? What is this story? Not even realizing that it had something to do with Sicilian heritage the first time I heard it. I think it is such a strange thing that both you and I grew up having that be part of our foraging childhood, wasn't it? You ate a lot of them, I bet, just like I did. Absolutely. It was definitely part of my childhood, and I have a few stories about it. It is one of the earliest fruits to become ripe in the area, and we had a swimming pool when I was growing up, and that was the sign that it was almost time for swimming and that school would be out was when the— Japanese plums would ripen. And they they turn this beautiful sort of golden yellow, and they're sweet, Mm -hmm. but they're so funny to eat because they've got those big, shiny, round pits inside. Yep, very shiny, brown seeds that are bigger than the fruit. I, I mean, the seed usually, I think there's like, it comes in different amounts. I think up to five seeds in a fruit. And the seeds were part of it for two reasons, because we used to spit the seeds, and those are even more fun to spit than watermelon seeds. So we'd spit them in the grass near the pool. And here's another weird thing. So when we were growing up, I haven't heard about this from anybody else, but my family was a little odd. So my dad was a full-blooded Sicilian. And he used to do this thing where we would, when we'd harvest them, we'd peel them, and we'd keep the seeds, put the seeds in like a jar, with either vodka or Everclear, and over a few weeks, it would turn this brown, warm, amber color, and it would taste like amaretto. We used to call it fake amaretto. (laughs) But I mean, amaretto is made from fruit seeds also, so it makes sense. And then finally, recently, I was like, was my family just crazy for drinking that? Or, you know, could we have all died? I mean, I know seeds have poisons in them. And I looked it up, and there is a liqueur in Italy called Nespolino. Wow. So 
this plant has been confusing people since the early days. <laughs> Originally, it was believed to be part of the Mispillus genus, which is meddlers. And I've never seen a meddler. I don't even know if anyone really eats meddlers. What is a meddler? Apparently, it's a fruit that produces in the winter. So that's the good thing about it because you can have this fruit in the winter. But it has to be rotten before it can be eaten. So in a weird way, I think maybe it's like similar to a persimmon. Uh-huh. So originally, they were thought to be part of that genus. But like in the 1800s, it was changed to another genus. And... I think this is where the confusion starts because the Mispillus genus, people still attached it to this fruit. And then when it changed, the name changed. I don't think people carried that name over. So you've got Mispillus. Then you have the Italian name, which is Nespoli. And then the third name, which I finally figured out makes the most sense. I was like, okay, so people were saying this fruit is called Misbelief. And it might have something to do with Mispillus. Or the Italian name Nespoli, but doesn't really this doesn't really sound like misbelief None to me. None of that makes any sense. So I was thinking, those words don't seem like very close to misbelief. I can't believe someone would misunderstand that much, even people from New Orleans. So I looked it up and I started thinking, you know, people f- who settled in New Orleans were not Italian; they were Sicilian. So luckily, I still have family in Sicily, and they still speak Sicilian. So on WhatsApp, I contacted my 80-something-year-old cousin, Rosa, and I sent her a picture of the fruit. And I said, what do you call these in Sicilian? And she sent me a voicemail that had her voice on it. And the way she said it sounded so close to misbelief. I was like, that's got to be it. Here's a recording of Rosa Guccione pronouncing the word. Now listen closely. Niespoli. One more time. Niespoli. Sounds a lot like misbelief. It really does. And also, I, when I was doing my research, I was trying to figure out, because this plant, which only grows in zone 8 and above, so, I mean, it's definitely likes our climate. It only grows in, like, the southeastern United States and western in the western United States because it really likes subtropical or mild climates. So I was thinking, well, you know, there, I guess there is a chance that this plant was here before the Sicilians, but I researched and researched and read up on, I mean, you know, the Jesuits came here and made lists of everything they saw, what they brought, so and it was not included. And, it, you know, I just did not find anything until like the late 1880s. Which leads you to believe that maybe... The misbelief came from Sicily. Correct. And then the late 1880s also, Amit City was heavily settled by Sicilians, and it was at one time called the Strawberry and Japanese Plum Parish of the state of Louisiana. So it actually, that was part of its name. Do you think they were sold commercially? I have a feeling they maybe they tried to do that, but they're very delicate, so that's that seems, I don't think it probably really took off. I guess strawberries took off. Why were they called Japanese plums? Because they don't have anything to do with Japan. Okay. Yeah. So they're originally from China during the Tang Dynasty. So this is like 600, 700 AD. Some students had brought seeds, or the plants, I'm not even sure, to Japan. So they do, apparently they grow in Japan. And I guess maybe that jump, maybe that's the first place other people were getting them from. I'm not sure, but 
they were called Japanese meddlers and Japanese poems. Oh, God. Even though they're not Japanese and they're not poems. <laughs> they're all over Sicily, aren't they? They are all over Sicily. But one thing that's kind of sad is they're really disappearing in New Orleans. I have trouble finding the trees these days. There's a blogger, D. Hollins. I referenced her in my article, and she believes it's because all the gentrifiers are, they don't know what to do with these trees. They're a little messy. They don't eat the fruit, and they just either let the fruit drop, and they don't do anything with them, and then they're cutting down the trees. I don't know if that's really true, but perhaps. Laura, thank you so much for shedding this little light on the misbelief, also known as the Japanese plum. Well, thanks for having me, Poppy. It's always great to see you. Laura Guccione, native New Orleanian and champion of the misbelief. olive salad originate? And how did it make it into New Orleans' famed mufalata sandwiches? Stay tuned, and we'll answer that question when we come right back. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, breadings, boils, new air fry mixes, and more classic Louisiana dishes, available everywhere. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor. And from the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, Stay, play, and get away on the Louisiana North Shore. The North Shore is brimming with welcoming patios, boasting waterfront views, and decadent dishes. Indulge in fresh Louisiana seafood, locally grown produce, homemade sweet treats, and ice-cold brews. You're invited to feed your soul along the Tammany Taste Culinary Trail, just 40 miles north of New Orleans' French Quarter, and a world away. Plan your St. Tammany visit at louisiananorthshore.com. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. Where does olive salad originate? And how did it make it into New Orleans' famed mufalata sandwiches? Olives and the golden elixir that is derived from them have been a staple of Sicily since man first walked there. Olive trees are indigenous to Sicily and grew wild on the island before the Greeks introduced their cultivars in about 800 B.C. 
Needless to say, there are countless salad concoctions that include olives, both authentically Sicilian and authentically New Orleanian. It's believed that the magical sandwich known as the Mufalata originated in New Orleans at Central Grocery in 1906. The sandwich got its name from the round seeded Italian loaves that it's made on, but no matter what you call it, it's not a mufalata unless it's simply soaked in olive salad and the tangy ingredients that make it up. The salad is composed of crushed green pimento stuffed olives and black calamatas. There's often pickled cauliflower, carrots, celery, pepperoncini, capers, garlic, and red wine vinegar, all combined in a rich, beautiful olive oil base. Once those ingredients are mixed together, they marinate for an extended period of time before being slathered on that mufalata. Luckily, there are great jarred olive salads available on every grocery store shelf, but if you'd like to give it a try at home yourself, just check out our website, poppytooker.com, where you'll find my recipe for Italian olive salad. I'm Poppy Tooker, and one thing is for sure, olive salad makes for some good Louisiana Eats. I'm Sal Impostato, former owner-manager of the Napoleon House in New Orleans. Sal Impostata's entire life was centered around the corner of Charters and St. Louis Streets in New Orleans French Quarter. His uncle, Joseph Impostata, bought the property that became the iconic Napoleon House in 1920, creating a family legacy that Sal upheld until he and the remaining family members sold the building and business to Ralph Brennan in 2015. We sat down with Sal to hear his memories of the distinctly Sicilian family business, memories that stretch from early childhood right through the 48 years he personally spent as caretaker of the family's landmark. My earliest memories are um, going there with my father. I can remember, you know, around five years old, my dad taking us to the Napoleon house. At that time, it was quiet, pretty much residential area. He'd do his business, and I would just hang around. Believe it or not, he raised milk goats in the backyard of our residence on Cassie Leon Street in New Orleans. And um, I remember he would even bring that goat to the bar, and he would let it eat grass on a small grassy area of the Supreme Court, I think, at the time, Uh right across the street. And... um, we would always go to Montalbano's Deli. It was on St. Philip Street. That space is like imprinted in my, in my memory. Marble top tables with ice cream chairs, ceramic floor, and um, big deli case behind it with a big scale. He was always weighing something out. Uh-huh. Didn't spend. I don't think we ever ate in the deli. We always picked up something to bring mm-hmm. home. That was a stop. The French market was a stop. Fresh fruit, always. 
also tobacados. Of course. Always tobacados. But that was most of uh, of my uh, recollection in the Pogan house. My dad did not really want myself or um, the rest of the family, which was my four sisters. He didn't really want us to be around the Napoleon house when it was operating. That was an adult thing. Yeah, yeah. it was so, a bar. It was mostly yeah, yeah. a bar. No right. food at that time, right? No, no food, no food. And um, to set some records straight, my dad was very religious. Uh. And what he was doing running a bar, I have no idea. He should have been, <laughs> he should have been a priest. <laughs> oh, well, that's so funny. <laughs> and if you would run into anybody who was still alive that knew my dad, they'd tell you the same thing. He would actually preach to you. <laughs> you know, he would, you know, don't drink too much, do this, you do this, do that. A very funny but, kind of a bar owner saying, right, don't drink too much. Yeah, yeah. And what did your uncle do? Uncle retired he, himself. He retired himself, but he 50, never went away. No, he. I think he. I think you remember him saying he retired himself at 50 years old and uh, lived upstairs with my aunt um, over 50 years. Did he spend time down in the bar? All the time. Okay, so he retired, All but he time. never really went away. Um, he lived upstairs. Right. And- uh, I'll tell you something about my uncle. My uncle um, lived to be 100 years old. Wow. Part of his breakfast was a, a shot of wild turkey, 101, and a glass of orange juice. Uh, everything was always fresh. My aunt was always, you know, cooking everything from scratch. And on the other side of the patio of the Napoleon house, there was a fig tree. Uh-huh. And uh, my uncle at 85, I can, I can remember, walking that wall to go pick figs, walking the top of the wall. Oh, my God. You go pick figs, and my aunt screaming at him, uh, you know, come down, come down from there. Well, he finally, he finally, he finally stopped that. But um, yeah, at, at 85, he was doing, still doing pretty good. But my dad, like I say, he he ran it to best he could. He didn't really want to be in, in the bar business. At one time, um, there was talk about him selling it, and um, I'm not sure what changed his mind. When was this that he was? He passed away at 60. So this was probably in his 50s sometimes. Oh. Sometime. So your dad didn't want his children to go into this business, huh? No. Well, how did no, that happen? No, in fact, in fact he, sent, he sent me away to um, a seminary summer camp for a week. I said, no, 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 no that's not for me. <laughs> so. And your uncle never had any children, your no, aunt and no, uncle. No, my aunt never had any children. So you all were the family, really, that there was. Correct. And so how does the transition happen? Um, yeah, I was in I was in my last year of Air Force uh, service, and um, my dad took sick. And um, when I got out, uh, I took over on, on December 10th, 1971. Now, Sal, is that what you wanted to do? Yes. So you grew up thinking, hmm, I kind of yes. like it down there. Well, I knew it. I knew the business meant a lot to a lot of people. And um, my wife cautioned me at the time, you know, I don't think, I don't think this is a good idea that you do this. And I said, no. I said, I really? I said, I'm the only one. Because um, I had another cousin who wanted to take it over, and I said, "Oh no, 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 no!" I said, "If anybody takes it over, it'll be, it'll be me." So um, yeah, I was um, I was dedicated to do it. 
And how long was your dad around from the time you took it over? He wasn't. He passed. He passed away in November. Oh, and so um, it was December. Yeah, that he you... passed away in November of seventy-one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, how? I thought maybe he'd be around to kind of guide me, but. But Uncle Joe was upstairs, right? Uncle Joe was upstairs, but no, but that's a different story. <laughs> <laughs> that's a different story. My Uncle Joe was very old school. Uh-huh. He, I just told this story to somebody over the weekend. You know, when I started at the Napoleon House, this was my routine. I had to get there a couple of hours early to chip ice because ice came in a 50 or 100 pound block and you had to ice pick it down to the size. That was my time spent getting it ready. And I, then I'd open it up. And I remember my uncle coming down. And uh, if it was summertime, I had the doors open, I had the fans running, I had the lights on. He would come in, and you said that he spent time down in the place. Yes. Yes. Every day, he'd come down, he'd sit down, he'd have his short glass of beer, and he'd say, turn the fans and the lights off until you get customers. And I'd say, (laughs) he said, you gotta gotta conserve, you know, your money. That's Uncle Joe. If I don't look like I'm open, I'm not going to get any customers. And that went on and on until finally, you know, I just, I, I, I won out. Yeah, you would see, yeah, you would see him every day. Uh, he had a favorite table. If you walked in the front door, you could look at a back wall between two arches. There was a space and a small table. It was, that was his table, either there or sitting on the sidewalk with one of the chairs. Um, but there was one, there was one time we, you, you know, you know the stairway in Napoleon House. Yes, very well. So it's three flights plus the attic stairway. Well, he, um, he and I used to climb that stairway often, and um, at one time, and I can't remember what year or how old he was, but I think it was somewhere in his nineties. He we, we approached the stairway, and he stops and he grabs my hand, and he said. Uh, uh, I, uh, I made my last trip. You go get it. And that was it. He never, never went back up. Oh, gosh. What a lovely memory. What a special man he was. Um, so how many children do you have, Sam? Three. And, and how, you know, you and your sister were down there. How, how, well, you were down there for decades and decades. How in the world did you make the decision that it was time to sell? Um, well, let me, let me back up. We we went through a, a transition period of sandwich shop or cafe or whatever you want to call it to to full restaurant with my nephew who took over the kitchen for me in 1995. Right around Katrina, I was thinking about maybe backing off on some time there and letting my son and my nephew take it over. Well, Katrina hit that. All his plans were scrapped. So uh, it took me a while to bring it uh, bring it back from Katrina. Then I had a son-in-law come in. He worked for us for a while, and I thought maybe he would help take over again with my son. He decided not to stay. So 
My sister and I both have a heart condition called AFib. And we're both suffering with it. And when it would hit us, if it would hit one of us at a time, it was it was okay. When it hit both of us at the same time, it really would knock us back trying to run that place. Mm-hmm. Um, in 2013, I said, Maria, we need to think about what we're going to do. It's time we start thinking about either bringing in a, a manager, leasing the place or whatever. Well, I mentioned to my retiring accountant that we were looking to retire. And he said, would you like me to mention it to Ralph Brennan? I'm a friend of his. And I said, sure. I mean, you know, we haven't even started looking yet. So we met with Ralph and, um, and actually that was it. We didn't, we didn't go out and look any further. When he said he wanted to keep it the same, which was, which was the biggest part, you know, that's when I decided and talked to my sisters. I said, you know, I think, you know, this may be the, this might be the right thing. And I think it's uh, a great way to keep our legacy going. So we did. What do you miss the most? Um, I was there 43 years. And um, the routine I kept up... Um, for me, it really wasn't strenuous. Now, sometimes it got really mentally strenuous uh, on some occasions, but um, I liked the pace I kept. I liked the people. Uh, you know, as you mature, you, you your uh, knowledge expands. Either you're uh, in books or you're taking it in from other sources, and my other sources was all the people around me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And characters. Correct. Lots, you, lots of characters. You had characters working for you, and you had characters as customers. I oh know. yeah. I always said the only business that had more characters than we had was Whitney Bank. <laughs> <laughs> they had to change money somehow. <laughs> exchange money. <laughs> <laughs> well, Sal, this has been such a treat to. Mm-hmm share all of these memories with you. Is there anything else that you want to make sure that people know or remember about the Napoleon House and the Infestadas? Um, going back to my, my, my uncle, um, and I have, to, I have to relate back to that because my dad wasn't around that long. Mm-hmm. But uh, my uncle... Um, Pretty much, pretty much guided me through a lot, and uh, you know, if it wasn't for him um, working hard and you know, beginning to buy the place, you know, none of us, none of us would be here. I, uh, and I, and I know I'm getting emotional, but uh, I do, I do regret losing the place, selling, selling the place. Um, but it was, um, it was necessary at the time, you know. Um, it's taken me a lot of years to continue to get over it. I don't, I don't think I fully will, but um, it'll be in my family forever. Sal Impostato of New Orleans' iconic landmark. The Napoleon House.
That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where we have 10 years of Louisiana Eats editions available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and videos, too. And if you like our show, please rate it on your preferred podcast platform. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Camellia Brand Beans, Crystal Hot Sauce, the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, Rouse's Markets, and from D'Agostino Pasta. Handcrafted in Louisiana from semolina wheat and air-dried over rods in wooden cellars, D'Agostino Pasta is made just as it's been done in Sicily for centuries. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Support for Louisiana Eats also comes from Gulf Coast Blenders. For more than 30 years, Gulf Coast Blenders has produced custom spice and dry blends for restaurant concepts across the country. Gulf Coast Blenders, dry ingredient blends with New Orleans roots. To learn more, visit gulfcoastblenders.com. Original theme music composed by David Pomerleau and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner and producer and special projects manager Reggie Morris. And to our business manager and social media maven Maddie Mulladu. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting.